I'm definitely a little obsessed with detective fiction and there is a problematic like time team, these television shows all about excavation and um, finding and digging the past and and they are really ecstatic when they find human remains and for me that's a horrific moment I have watched that series for years in fact one of my like dad's side of the family's cousins turns up as the Roman expert on that show it's so weird I'm Pip Stafford and you're listening to What Are You Looking At a podcast about art and ideas by Contemporary Art Tasmania. I'm so interested in in what we can find, relocate, revive about the past, what's still asleep. For me, things aren't so much lost as this this potential to find things. They're not they're not gone. They're just a bit lost, you know, or asleep if it's a cultural practice perhaps. But with um yeah, time team, there's this moment their apex moment is they're digging up a person. It's like, oh my God, that's where there's that massive disconnect of like lack of respect and not seeing those people as them. They don't see that they're actually desecrating their own people, you know? And so then I think, okay, little wonder that they feel the same kind of emptiness of, of spirit and responsibility and care to the rest of this empire. For this episode of What Are You Looking At? We're exploring what is lost, or as Julie puts it, asleep. Thematically, this episode was inspired by Diana Baker-Smith's exhibition, The Lost Hour, which was installed at CAT earlier this year. And you'll hear more about that work directly from Diana later. For me, I started thinking about what happens when artworks and cultural artefacts go missing, and started doing research around lost art. It turns out there's a whole field of study, historical, academic and legal, around this topic. A lot of writing around art loss and thievery goes like this. Good guy, the cop, rescues important art from bad guy, the thief. These scenarios that could be played out by Sherlock, Inspectors Morley or Morse. There are also actual art detectives, people like Amsterdam-based Arthur Brand, who, according to the BBC, is the Indiana Jones of the art world, and the late Charles Hill, a Scotland Yard detective who recovered the scream. This world of crime and restitution is particularly intoxicating. I'm an unashamed crime fiction nerd, and at least two of my interviewees are as well. I'm studying law alongside my art practice and producing this podcast. There's so much cultural output about that particular dynamic. So this episode doesn't look at art thieves. Instead, we're exploring other loss, cultural loss, hidden histories, and catastrophic events. Think of this as three episodes in one. Three stories about art and loss and rediscovery. This is Julie Goff. I'm an artist, a curator, writer um, and Tasmanian Aboriginal person living in uh, Hobart, Nipaluna. Julie's work considers the friction between her Tasmanian Aboriginal heritage and the heritage she shares with colonialists and doesn't shy away from or hide the problematic, often violent and very sad aspects of this history both within her own family and with regard to the community and country. I kept re-approaching in different artworks this um, sense of trying to understand my history and heritage, what our family and extended community here have um, endured in a way and and how you can directly link these physically to objects. Um, So the, the exhibition was called The Lost World and most of the artworks were about this seeking, this sort of sense of seeking and a, a willingness to present myself in this in this act of trying to find, which um, then ends up with often the works are either poignant or a little bit ridiculous or strange. I don't mind to be that sort of point of 
there's an amusement. There's sort of something about putting yourself out there. So the Lost World number one was a video work. My brother and I decided we wanted to try to find a place. So it wasn't about missing cultural objects, but about physically, we weren't sure how to find a place that we knew was important to our ancestors um, and was well cared for. It was, a, you know, there was a path to this place and it was in the north of the state. It was a place to collect ochre. And we, we thought and figured that, yeah, really, as the kind of crow flies, which is, it turned out, not the same as how a human walks, we should be able to, get to reach this place in, in a couple of relaxing hours. But we actually ended up severely dehydrated 12 hours later, covered in leeches, and never, never reached the place. And I think that's kind of maybe metaphoric for 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 life in a way sometimes you can try too hard and it's not the time or not your place or not the place for you at the time all of these things you know and presumption of like I actually had one of these um modern technology GPS type you know things to to, to point the way I think these things all served to create a kind of vortex of seeking rather than reaching you know created that which create and I was filming with I think it was a GoPro on my I had a GoPro on me so I also so I wasn't sure what or what would be or kept as a recording or if it would be actually an artwork all of it or some of it but it, it the footage and the inability to reach the place became the point Julie is also the Indigenous Cultures Curator at the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery and she describes the collision between her professional life and her artistic life as being critical in terms of the dialogues and correspondences that are happening with museums around the world about repatriation of cultural objects and human remains. In February 2021, the Tasmanian Museum and Art Gallery issued an official apology to the Tasmanian Aboriginal people for being instrumental and implicated in acts such as removal of remains of people and cultural artefacts from their country. Tasmania is like a really key, it would be a key case study for things done extremely badly, removing cultural objects along with human remains and now not rectified particularly well. There's opportunities for repatriation and slowly from museums and other collecting institutions around the world. They've come to see that human remains in the, in the most part should be returned and they have been undertaking that since the 70s. But cultural objects, very hard to leverage these people, these institutions, these cultures that are not our own into seeing that a permanent return is, is, is what's necessary, particularly when how they were taken is part of this story as well and to consider all aspects of what, what is lost or missing. I mean, lost is more the sense of um, perhaps not knowing where they are, but they're still lost even if they we do know, you know, it's a, until they're back, they're, they're away from us. Keep finding ways through art to represent the, the aspects of that, which art is so useful for showing like the, 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 the what is part of the action of like how you live with loss so I can make repetitive action through film or so record performative action in a way for how I, I want to retain them or recover 
And there's an impossibility if it's outside of our hands. If I'm visiting a city, another city to, to visit and view some of our cultural objects held in other museums, interstate or in Launceston or London even, and photographed stone tools that held there. And in fact, there's probably more like 30,000 of our stone tools held off Tasmanian shores. There's 12,000 alone Tasmanian Aboriginal stone tools held in Oxford University, Pitt Rivers Museum. So one man between, I think, 1909 and 1911 collected that many stone tools on a visit here and uh, in um, correspondence and staying with families, colonists, non-Aboriginal people across the island. So strange because these are not only our country that's missing, but they're also the, you know, the work, the handiwork, the work of our ancestors so they tell us a lot about the skills of our ancestors and the types of stone and their purpose for the tools take a form for which they're needed to undertake work with plants or animals or shellfish or with notches into trees or cutting all sorts of, you know, this is a huge knowledge bank and so much of it is, is uh, missing from the ground here. Also the, pos the sort of prob problem of returning them to country literally and then they would be taken by others or or destroyed or hidden because um they're seen as a an issue by colonists so these colonists landholders who um try to hide evidence of Abri aboriginal occupation because it can be logged as heritage uh, site and therefore it's perceived as a problem for if anyone wanted to do undertake development and require a permit to show there is no Aboriginal occupation. There's this sort of desire here to erase Aboriginal presence for lots of economic reasons. So, yeah, it's like genocidal, um, cultural genocide, not just our physical genocide. I was fortunate to be in a project at Museum, Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology at the University of Cambridge, uh, and I proposed Lost World 2 as a project, which is that they have a finite number. I think it's like 60 or 70 tools from Tasmania, stone tools, and Australian was their resident as a kind of a scholar called Khadija Carroll. And she had a friend, it's a long story here, um, Christoph Belzar, who was visiting, able to visit us. And he is a photographer. So he made beautiful photographs of, I think it's about 35 of the tools that I selected. And, and then I proposed I would return to Tasmania. And I was so basically, you know, showing the museum this the, the craziness of what they've created by holding so fiercely onto our cultural objects and then creating these, you know, this strange dance between Aboriginal people and these institutions and us with ourselves on, on how to live with without and how to make do or work around issues that shouldn't be the issues we need to work around. But so I, I wanted to kind of demonstrate that strange, the problem that can be rectified by returning cultural objects, at least to the hands of the Aboriginal community, if not back on the ground, literally, and came back with the photographs and repatriated them. But that is not the correct term because it wasn't such, but it was a performative return by taking each photograph to a place where I think it was most likely the stone tool had been taken from, which then in doing that, there's these heartening, there's a heartening possibility at least of um, me spending time on country, learning about not only country, but culture, finding other tools, in fact, often that I was able to identify, not touch, but leave the photograph in the vicinity of, in a usually non-obtrusive, non fairly non-visible manner. So it's kind of like a reunion of me to country and objects and thinking about ancestors and talking 
it was really solo pursuit, but not because it felt really, I felt like I was full of, I was full of stuff. I was like, I was full of many thoughts, but also surrounded by this thickness of the energy of, of what I was doing felt like an important return and, and less undoing or reworking the loss into something else. But still then afterwards, there they are still in, in uh, Cambridge, you know, so that, that was a projection, I think. So just basically, they end up being very, a lot of the works I make are very repetitive and they, they are really almost uh, just a recording of a, mm, like a reference piece, really, you know, not so much. I wouldn't know that, I wouldn't think of, mm, many of my works seem very particularly creative. They're just putting something on the record in a way, adding something from an uh, Aboriginal perspective that otherwise is not visible people won't be able to know or find how someone felt in 2016 aboriginal person about the loss of these objects so i suppose it's an alternative to writing a book or creating a play or something it's another way to register it we're still here but those objects are still there since 1975 aboriginal cultural artifacts have been protected in tasmania by the aboriginal heritage act but it remains very difficult and a fraught process to have objects returned. Julie told me a story about a specific kelp water carrier that has been recently rediscovered. That was taken by the French in 1792. I think it's 25th of May. You can pinpoint the, the location, the date. They took it from the Recherche Bay and they took two baskets. And so it's, it's turned up about a year and a half ago as a, registered as an African leather object. But it's, you know, anyway, so in Musée de Cabron Lee, which was a creation of Jacques Chirac, where he requested objects um, come together from many museums in France. So in the 1830s, that water carrier was in the Musée de Louvre in the section of the uh, Musée de la Marine, so the seafaring section, which doesn't exist now as I understand it. So somehow it's made its way to survive right now. And they uh, admitted pretty much what I then refound later, which is that they came upon the objects. When they come upon these cultural objects, the French um, expeditions, the people have usually like run away and hid in the bush, run off and hid, right? So they took two baskets and a kelp water carrier on that day that's um, 230 years ago, exactly. In, in um, But they left some biscuits, cheese, a clay pot and some trinkets. So they 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 left these objects, which I was told was um, like a exchange. And I'm thinking, well, no, it's not exactly an exchange if if you've taken things and, you know, but because I think uh, that's a very interesting legal point about that the how that proceeded, you know, and and because for insurance purposes, it's now valued at well over a million dollars, that kelp carrier, you know, so these are the things as soon as they're overseas, their value is, you know, three very, of course, they are extremely valuable as much as a glove of painting or whatever, you know, extremely valuable in monetary sense. But yeah, I felt and um, when I read, I reread that and I thought I'm flying over immediately with a clay pot, some cheese and biscuits and some trinkets. And I'm going to request that they hand those back to us, you know? So what happens after a flood? I mean, flood water is not like rainwater. It's, it's 
filthy, it stinks, it's full of rotting plant matter and petrol and sewerage and it you know, you get infections from working there and there's mold and, and there's no power anywhere. There's in in fact two months after the flood there's still almost no power in the central business district of Lismore, including the gallery. So when we were trying to, the first couple of days when we got back into the building was just clearing out all of the furniture and trying to get to the artwork. And we we, we were in a position where we probably lost, would lose everything from our permanent collect because we had nowhere to look after it. This is Fiona Fraser. I am one of the curators at Lismore Regional Gallery. I was born in Lismore. And lived in Tasmania for a time and has worked closely with CAT's touring program. And now I'm living in a town that has been partially washed, washed away by a giant flood. The flood crisis gripping this part of the state is certainly taking a toll. The Wilsons River at Lismore has peaked at more than 14 metres. Good evening. Much of the northern river city of Lismore is underwater tonight. It's worst flooding on record. In February this year, towns and cities in the east of Australia were subject to some of the worst flooding in recorded history. The town of Lismore was one of the worst hit. Lismore is a town and a community that is very used to floods. There have always been a lot of floods in Lismore and everyone is very prepared for them. You know, over the years they've raised their houses above record flood heights and businesses and homes prepare and have flood plans and, and know the drill when when a flood is coming but this most recent flood in February was almost two and a half meters higher than every other flood in history and so everyone enacted their flood plans and raised everything precious they owned above previous flood heights to save them and then the flood went through and destroyed everything anyhow. A grieving, you know, I think actually that's one of the biggest emotions that the community is feeling is grieving for the loss of all of their belongings, of their house, you know, their history, their town is changed forever and they're the negative emotions but on the positive there has been an incredible community effort a grassroots coming together of tens of thousands of people from all over the country in fact who have come to help people who have nothing left to try and salvage what's left of their homes and their belongings so there's a really incredible feeling of community and that's always been one of the features of Lismore is the strength of the community and how everyone helps each other out. And so it's sort of these two ends of the spectrum. You know, people are deeply traumatised and grieving but sort of freshly in love with their community again. So it's a very strange feeling. The Lismore Regional Gallery had run for 63 years from a heritage building and in 2017 the gallery moved into a beautiful new purpose-built space, four times the size of the previous one. 
It became a real cultural hub, situated in the centre of town, neighboured by the Lismore Library and the Conservatorium of Music, on a quadrangle of grass, where there were markets and protests and cultural events and yoga groups. Fiona described it as a beating heart that the gallery was part of. And if you work in the arts, you'll know what an important and community-changing thing a purpose-built space can be. For the first time ever, we had you know, museum quality, air conditioning and humidity control, and, you know, an outstanding permanent collection storeroom, you know, security systems and amazing lighting. And, and, you know, there was some debate when we moved, when it was planned to move to this new building because it is in a flood zone. And so the question was asked, should the gallery move from one part of the flood zone to another? And perhaps they should move up the hill. But like with all flood planning in Lismore, it revolved around the previous record height of, I think, 12.2 metres. And so the gallery worked with that and everything that was very precious, including 1,400 works from our permanent collection and our four main exhibition spaces were upstairs out of flood height and everything downstairs was either, you know, impervious materials like bricks and concrete and metal and that sort of thing or on wheels. So all of our office and library and our merchandise and everything was on wheels and could be wheeled into our our big lift and taken upstairs, which means we knew full well that every approximately 10 years, a flood would come through the building over the levee and through the building and that we'd have to wash it out and there'd be some things that we'd have to replace, um, but that anything precious would be upstairs above flood height. Nobody alive has. What we are seeing today is unprecedented. And so before the flood, we there was about 10 of us spent five hours the day before the flood, raising everything up to safety. But this time, the flood came another two and a half metres higher and actually we lost every single thing in the building except a few bits of furniture that we managed to salvage and and it remains to be seen what what will be saved from our permanent collection. As the rain poured through the night Fiona tells of having the realization that the flooding would go above and beyond what was predicted by the Bureau of Meteorology. I woke up at six o'clock in the morning to check the situation again and they finally had changed their prediction to 14.2 metres or something. And I I knew what that meant. I knew that that would be everything that the gallery owned. And, and the next thought was, it's everything that everyone on the floodplain owns, all of the businesses and homes, because that, that space, that few metres above the flood height, that's where everyone stores their precious things. And... Then I realised actually it's not just the things, it's the people and that there were hundreds or thousands of people that were going to need rescue. You know, it was an incredible scene. There were thousands of rescues conducted by members of the community in 
tinnies and kayaks and and without that you know literally hundreds of people would have died i i don't know how people how long it's going to take for people to recover from that i know there's a lot of people having nightmares recurring nightmares about that as you can probably imagine you know those low lying areas cheaper houses cheaper rentals and that's that means that disproportionately artists were affected by this so they're often the ones that live in those houses and they've built a studio space under the house and so i i don't know the figures but you know it would be hundreds of artists maybe more i don't know who have not just lost everything in their house or their belongings but their studios their materials their past works their digital archives of their of their career their laptops <laughs> you know they they're starting from zero and or you know they've had to trawl through the muddy rat remains and try and clean their paintings and resurrect what they can and you, you can imagine how traumatic that is after <laughs> the initial trauma to have to see your lifetime of work you know in such a state and to try and salvage what you can Fiona lives on a hill so is very fortunate not to have lost anything personal to the floods but of course has spent weeks cleaning out the gallery and trying to salvage art. We were working by torchlight and everything had floated up in the water off the collection store racks and came back down as the water went away into like a giant pickup sticks of <laughs> all of the precious things covered in mud and wet and soft. It very easy to damage further. and just to be on the safe side of making sure that things were really bad there was also a fire in our collection store and the water had sparked a fire in our solar system and then fortunately the the rising water then put it out again but in the meantime quite a lot of our works were also smoke damaged there was a conservation project put together by international conservation services and not just for us but any other cultural facilities that were affected by the flood and so they arranged for a conga line of um refrigerated trucks i art removal trucks and art handlers and a couple of trained disaster conservators to come and help us triage and rescue everything that was in our collection so it took 4 days to get everything out of the building At the time of the floods, Lismore Gallery was hosting a touring exhibition of Afghan war rugs. There were about 45 rugs from um, private collections, mostly in Australia, I think. Magnificent, absolutely stunning show. I just felt so privileged to have worked on that. Um, walking into the space while the exhibition was on just made you feel. I mean, it seemed it was a bit contradictory, but it. they were so joyous even though they were about horrific content they were so beautiful it was such a pleasure and then to know that while you're they're in your care they <laughs> they're undergoing 
one of the most damaging things. I mean, fire would have been more damaging, I guess, you know, for them to be reduced to ash. But they were all Velcroed onto the wall for display and a lot of them with the weight of the water. So, you know, the water was over two metres high in that exhibition space. The weight of the water, you know, they had torn themselves off the wall but structurally they were fine and but the space was dark we were working in by torchlight and we had to clean out the mud before we could work on the on the artworks and so the process was that they were rolled on around plumbing tubes and then wrapped in plastic they were put in a refrigerated truck and taken to Canberra and frozen and then one by one those works will be unfrozen and cleaned and dried. And in some respects, they were in good condition. The mould had started, but it hadn't, I don't think it had taken hold enough to damage the fabric of the of the rugs. But there was definitely some bleeding of the colours, so I'm not sure what can be done about that. Anyhow, they are in the hands of experts textiles conservators so whatever can be done will be done it it will likely be somewhere between a year and two years before the gallery is back functioning as it was or better than it was yeah there's also a, you know sensitivities when you're talking about works in a collection we need to find out ourselves what condition things are in before we then talk to the artists who have created the work and see if they want to work on it or you know are they happy with the condition that it's in some things will be almost pristine you know something floated in archive boxes and were untouched and others were almost unrecognizable there was a photograph I saw I couldn't even tell what it was it the image had had vanished and it was only the artist's signature at the bottom that indicated what it was so, you know, there's a great variety in <laughs> what has happened to the collection and we will get a lot of it back. It was fortunately well insured, but there will be things that are lost forever and there's nothing we can do about it. It's, it's, it's done now. They say these floods will be more and more common and so we have to walk into the future ready for that. with crime fiction <laughs> I'm a big Patricia Highsmith fan I'm like obsessed with lots yeah my name is Diana Baker Smith and I am an artist and um, lecturer at UNSW Art and Design In March and April 2020, Kat hosted Diana Baker-Smith's The Lost Hour exhibition and the one-hour concert performance in our gallery and was the starting point for researching this episode. Diana works across moving image, performance and text, utilising archives, research and fictional embellishment. She works with artists Frances Barrett, Kate Blackmore and Kelly Dolly on their collaborative project Barbara Cleveland which is the name of the group and also the name of the fictional figure they've created, 
Philippa Cullen was an influence for creating this fictional feminist artist. So some of the biographical details of Philippa that I had um, found out about then became a sort of backbone for um, Cleveland, along with a lot of other artists as well. So in a way, there was a sort of spectral figure of Cullen in the early works I was making with Cleveland in sort of 2010-2011 and then I didn't actually make it was she's sort of in my mind for a long time of wanting to do something um, with her work and I wrote about her for my uh, PhD and did more research on her but it wasn't until 2019 that I did a performance lecture that was the first uh, work I did about her that was at the the Channel's Video Art Festival at the NGV. So that was a sort of stepping stone of, yeah, performance lecture with sort of video visuals that I created that then led into the the body of work that um, has been at CAT. I first heard about her work mainly through talking to people that would have been her contemporaries, other artists and curators that were active in the 70s. So in particular, I remember interviewing the artist Joan Grounds and I was interviewing her about her practice and early uh, performance in Australia and particularly interested in kind of feminist work and the work of women artists that were practicing early on in sort of early performance art history in Australia. And she told me about Philippa and how important she was for a sort of local Sydney community and, and told me the story of how she had passed away really, really early when she was 25. And then I, I was doing a whole lot of research at the time around this early history of performance art. And so the more people I interviewed, particularly women artists and curators, all mentioned Philippa as this sort of, and described her as this unbelievable force. And the one, the thing that always came back was that, you know, she was this really important artist who crossed over in between dance and the visual arts, which was not so common in Australia and Sydney at that time. So that really, yeah, piqued my interest as to who, who Philippa was because in what I'd read the performance art in Australia there was not really much of a mention of her at all so I was kind of curious that when I was talking to people of that era they all remembered her fondly but yet she has you know I suppose because she died so young that's one main reason had not been written about so that was sort of the beginning for me with um, being interested in her work. The Lost Hour is specifically about a work of Cullen's called The 24-Hour Concert, a work that ended up only being 23 hours and a work that was never finished due to the artist's sudden death. So the plan was that they she was going to do a 24-hour endurance performance and it was just coincidental that it happened to fall on the day that Daylight Savings changes. So... I don't know, you know, in the spirit of the 70s of like very much a sort of happening, things going on everywhere. Who knows if they even knew till the day it happened, you know, because often with daylights, you know, you only know now because your phone changes, but you don't necessarily know what's coming up. So I don't think she knew. She certainly didn't know ahead of time. It was always planned 24 hours. So this sort of anecdote of it coincidentally falling on this day was I just I mean for me that's like why I love to engage with archives and history of these like finding out these little hiccups or like problems with things that then can open up something else so I mean that story was told to me by one of her collaborators in a sort of passing remark which he was then saying you know I hope that hasn't 
kind of ruined the whole project for you that it didn't happen for 24 hours and I said to him well it's actually kind of made my project this is amazing this I love this story and so when she found out like obviously the next day or whenever that an hour was missing from this 24-hour performance she then planned to do a one-hour concert the following year but the following year she had passed away so it never happened so there was this like potential or plan for a one-hour concert. The lost hour contains layers of loss. The loss of the artist, the loss of the hour and the loss or perhaps not loss of an archival box. Probably about five years ago I you know requested to look at these two boxes that were in the National Library collection and when I arrived the librarian very apologetically you know said oh there's this box we're going to try and find the other box I know you you know I was there for two days in Canberra they were going to try and find the second box for the second day and so I was like okay and they were you know sort of very yeah very apologetic and kind of mortified that they'd lost the thing and then the next day I went back and they still couldn't find it and they weren't sure when they'd find it and anyway so I went through the one box that was there and that's where I first became interested in the 24-hour concert which is this sort of concept of the lost hour which is the thing that has obsessed me about that work but funnily enough then a few years later when I went back to look at again And I was thinking then about making a a video work and wanting to film some of the archival material. So I was arranging that. And when I asked them, they said that there'd never been two boxes, there'd only been one box. And it was a mistake. Like it was a cataloging mistake, basically. And that it hadn't gone missing. So (laughs) whether or not this is the case or, you know, who knows. But the, the kind of material that ended up in that, in the library, had gone to so many different places, it's unclear as to how many boxes or what had gone missing along the way. Because the, the there's a sort of there was a letter written by one of Philippa Philippa's friends that said there was two boxes that had been donated to a local Sydney library in Paddington. And then at some point they had given it to another library and then that library had then, it's, you know, 20 years later, given the material to the, to the National Library. So it kind of had moved around this, you know, New South Wales and ended up in Canberra. So they seem to, they, they're standing by the fact that there was never two boxes. <laughs> but I, I have no idea if there was two boxes or if the, everything got sort of condensed into one box. It's, it's still a mystery to me. Towards the end of our discussion, I asked Diana about the turn to re-examining the historical canon of art in order to include artists whose work may have been lost, left out or forgotten, particularly women artists who have often been marginalised. I asked her if she thought it was important to dig up what has been lost or forgotten so that history can be corrected. All of my work is informed by a sort of feminist politics and practice that, you know, for a long time has, you know, part of the feminist project has been about re-examining, like in terms of art history, re-examining a particular canon and structural bias along the lines of gender in particular. So that has has always informed my approach to making and thinking. I th- for me, there's not such a, a sense of, like the idea of correcting history <laughs> 
doesn't, I mean, while I do understand that desire, it's not so much about correcting because I feel like correcting suggests that there's one right way or of understanding history. Whereas, of course, it's, you know, history is constructed and performative and depends on who's telling the story and all those things that we know. I'm kind of, I'm interested in troubling the canon and troubling the idea of a particular singular history and thinking about multiple genealogies and multiple ways of understanding what has come before us. And for me, I I feel like there's, all of the work I do is quite collaborative. And I often think of like, the way like when I engage with the work of an artist from the past or you know who's a different generation to me that there's a kind of collaboration like there's a collaboration with Philippa Cullen or Pat Latta in sort of collaborating with their archives so that there is a sort of intergenerational relationship and forms of care that are crossing crossing but of course like as we know <laughs> like the art history is like deeply sexist and racist and all of those things of like the canon is like very much sort of formulated around the the very idea of a genius which is typically a sort of you know straight white male who's often a painter and there's this the very particular kind of tropes that we know so troubling that with works that are yes by women but also that are ephemeral performative male art video art things that are not easily collected or easily written about for me is an interesting way of troubling um both a sort of focus on sort of the genius and also singular Um, artworks or singular sort of progressive movements so so while I have focused a lot on female artists I've also made work about sort of the origin points of art history in relation to the opening of the National Gallery or like particular moments when Lucy Lippard for instance came to Australia and there's all this mythology that she began the sort of feminist art movement here so returning to that moment So I'm interested in artists, but also events or moments and how we can engage with those moments and trouble them or rethink them and make something that uh, I guess makes sense for us in the present. What are you looking at is now in its seventh year and our archive plus show notes and information about our gallery program and public events are available on our website www.contemporaryarttasmania.org Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. I'd like to thank Julie Goff, Fiona Fraser and Diana Baker-Smith for sharing their thoughts, ideas and stories for this episode.